0: G'day, 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 and welcome everyone. That's our resident scaredy cat, Kate.
1: And that's the horror junkie, Dominic.
0: And you're listening to Shit and Bricks.
1: A podcast where we talk shit about some scary stuff.
0: The sort of fear your arsehole knows about.
1: As always, subscribe, rate, and review us. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Shit and Bricks Podcast.
0: Alright, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it.
1: Hi, Kate. Hi, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. I was just about to ask how you were doing, but I I know how you're doing, whether or not you want to share it with our our audience. But uh, I'm really well. I'm really well.
0: That's good. Yes. I have had a little visit from Auntie Rona and (laughs) she's moved in for seven days.
1: (laughs) She's not even the fun auntie that like brings you $50 bills and, you know, wraps them up in in shitty Christmas wrap. She's the worst auntie.
0: Yeah, I can't even spend my $50. dollars i got to just sit at my desk and do nothing, really. it's Cabin fever has definitely set in, which, by the way, we should totally do an episode on cabin fever.
1: That's an excellent idea.
0: Oh, look at that. See, my, my, my uh, creative juices haven't been stymied by bloody Rona. But, uh, <laughs> yes, for those listening at home, I won the race. First out of Kate and I to, to get it. It's gone a bit berserk in Australia, so... We're celebrating our first episode of, episode of the year with, uh, with a special guest.
1: Yay! Welcome, Auntie Rona.
0: Mm, our friend. You bitch. <laughs>
1: Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's good though that we can still record our episodes. We are doing it uh, back remotely. Um, we had our little fun recording in person before everybody got sick. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to record some more episodes in person. One day.
0: Yeah. Soon. (laughs) I've got 30 days of immunity afterwards, so, you know, I'm going to definitely make the the best of it. All right. So you want to hear what our topic is for today?
1: I really do. I've been trying to avoid looking up anything about this, so hit me with it.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, I've got a question for you, Kate, Mm -hmm. can you list some of your like worst ways to die, like your biggest fear of how you die?
1: So I feel like burning, burning to death wouldn't be great. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, definitely being trapped in a, like a cave or something and -hmm. knowing you can't get out. Then you're just like, well, you know, I'm trapped Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to will myself to death. That would be pretty horrible. (laughs) Um, I'm going to think really (laughs) hard. Come on. (laughs) Die. Die. Mm. I can't do it too much because it might work. Um, you might shit yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll save that for the episode when we talk about shitting ourselves. We always seem to come back to that. It's so, it's the classy podcast. That's what I always say. Uh, those would probably be the top ones. I think around that, you know, the waiting to die, perhaps, you yeah. know, knowing that that's really the only option. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I'm mm. not surprised because I'd say fire is probably up there on most people's lists. Yeah. Um, and this story that I'm going to tell today definitely has that or possibly <gasps> it's it's going to, it's up to you to decide uh, whether this is, whether this happened or not. So I've got a bit Daddy. of a mystery uh, episode for everyone today. And you know, I love a good whodunit. Yes. And we're starting the year off pretty PG for Dominic. So we're not diving too into the trauma just yet. Um, <laughs> but
1: there's time. If there is we got the time. whole of 2022. We can hit on all the trauma. We go as deep as you like. <laughs>
0: yeah. But the reason why I picked this story is because, again, drawing it back to our own fears, as someone that has recently donated to some, some dear friends of mine to have children, I have now started to connect with that idea of losing a child or your child being kidnapped or anything along those lines. Someone sneezing on your child just scares the hell out of you. Um, And then also the fear of being burnt alive so this story has got all of it it's got so much in it and I can't wait to share it and it's probably going to be a really long episode but who cares
1: who cares just on that as well when you just said that you you donated for some people to have a child in my mind I was like how much did you how much money did you give like go me it it took me way too long (laughs) to make the connection. Yeah. Shout out to Chandler if he's listening, when he's listening.
0: Yeah. 20 (laughs) 20 bucks. Just see how far that gets you.
1: 20, dollars He could get a new baseball hat with that. He does rock a baseball hat. That's for sure. Yes,
0: he does. (laughs) Um, Okay. So the story, this is probably the most or one of the most famous ever missing Person stories ever in human history. And there's a few of them, and I'm definitely going to touch on all of them at some point in uh, Shitting Bricks, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to start with this one. So today I'm going to tell the story of the Sodder Children. All right, it's 11 (laughs) pages, so it's a long one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, rip on settling
0: in. Okay, let's get cracking. Let's do it. All right, I want to introduce you to Jenny and George Sodder. Now George was born in Sardinia, Italy, shout out to my peeps, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1895, and he immigrated to the United States 13 years later. And for the rest of his life, George would not talk much about why he left his homeland, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Now, George eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, and uh, his job was pretty basic. It was just get whatever work you can get. He was an immigrant, Um, so he was doing things like carrying water and other supplies to some of the other workers in the area. And after a few years, he took a more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. And after a few more years after that, he started his own trucking company um, and he was just hauling all sorts of things, uh, things like fill dirt to construction sites, and then later hauling coal that was mined out of the West Virginia region.
1: Oh, okay. great. A very industrious person. Yes.
0: Making his way. The That's living it, the, the dream. dream. That's mm. in the
1: American dream.
0: The American nightmare, <laughs> as yeah. it would later turn into. <laughs> now, Jenny... Jenny Cipriani, she was a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers uh, who had also immigrated from Italy in her uh, early childhood and she would later become George's wife. So Mm -hmm. that's George and that's Jenny, I have to say it. (laughs) Jenny? Yeah,
1: you can't not. You can't not. That's perfect.
0: Alrighty, so George and Jenny. Now, George and Jenny were very busy. They, they got up to a lot of things in this area. Okay. Um, now, the couple settled outside uh, nearby Fayetteville. Um, so if you know anything about West Virginia, it's just, it's very country land. Um, but Fayetteville is where they settled. And they had a really large population of Italian immigrants. So they were amongst their people. Um, and they moved into a two-story timber frame house about three kilometers north of Fayetteville.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In 1923, they had their first of 10 children.
1: Yeah, they were busy. They were very busy. There was no TV in their timber-framed house. (laughs) 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 Um, Yes,
0: so 10 children. And uh, George's business, luckily, it prospered. And they became one of the most respected middle-class families in town. Now, George... As most Italian men uh, had very strong opinions about many subjects. Now, it's <laughs> funny that people word it that way. I just think that's a misunderstanding of, you know, general Italian culture. We're just really passionate people. We could talk about anything and it sounds like we're really passionate and opinionated, but we're not. It's just, yeah. We're at a 10 a lot of the time. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome.
1: You're at an 11, Dom. You're at an 11. Don't do rate yourself down. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. A one for every child that the son has had and yeah. plus some.
1: <laughs>
0: Anyway, so it was reported that George had very strong opinions about many subjects and he was not shy about expressing them. And that would often alienate a lot of people. In particular, he had a very strident opposition to the Italian dictator Mussolini. Now, Mm. well, you know, I can't blame him for that, but (laughs) (laughs) it was a different time. And there were a lot of people that really uh, loved and supported uh, Mussolini. So, of course, it's going to be a controversial opinion to have. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, the last Soda child that was ever born was a lovely little girl named Sylvia, and she was born in 1943. So... Mm -hmm. 1929 to 1943, business is going well, and they've had 10 children. So, honestly, things are looking pretty good. Yeah, that's it. Now, they did have a son, their second eldest, Joe. He had actually left home to serve in the military during World War II. There's only nine of them at home. It's just, there's a lot of children to think about. And when, okay. when you ever look up and research the sort of children, Joe seems to always get left off sometimes, and they only show you pictures of the nine. So, anyway, it's just... Okay given J's too. We
1: have to do like this, you know, like a, a diagram mm-hmm. of all the children and the ages and whatnot. But I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm keeping up. I'm yep. with you.
0: Cool. Now, just for reference, because I did mes- mention Mussolini um, and George's very strong opinions of it. Um, 1943. For those that don't know their history, um, the following year Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some still pretty hard feelings amongst the community in Fayetteville. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. I'm just dropping you little hints here and there.
1: I'm taking notes. I'm, I'm getting it. I'm still hung up on the timber framed house. Because <laughs> no, when you describe a house, nobody usually, you know, says what it's made of. So mm. I'm, I'm kind of hung up on that.
0: Well, the next section of my story is called The Fire. So there's Excellent. The Fire yes all right so at christmas time i'm doing this i'm I'm so good at picking stories i'm just gonna say like i do it it's on topic it's out of the time anyway
1: it's amazing
0: so the sodders they love to celebrate christmas the night before so christmas eve is a really big deal and it's a pretty common european tradition as well
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: so this is christmas eve 1945 Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, with new toys she had bought for them as gifts. Cute. The younger children were so excited and that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime. Mm -hmm. Sounds cute. At 10 p.m., Jenny, the mother, not Jenny the daughter. There's two <laughs> Jennies, okay? It gets confusing, but at 10 p.m., Jenny told them that they could stay up a little bit later as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis, as long as they remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves.
1: Okay? Okay. It's a good deal.
0: Yep. it's a pretty good deal. Easy. They're going to do it anyway. It's part of their usual chores. Now, George, the dad, and the two oldest boys, John, who was 23, and George Jr., who was 16, they'd spent the whole day working with their father and they were already fast asleep. Yep. After reminding the children of those remaining chores, Jenny took Sylvia, the youngest one, the last one ever born. Sylvia was only two years old. She took Sylvia upstairs and they went to bed together. Yep. Okay. Now, That was at 10 p.m. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. Jenny woke up and went downstairs to answer it. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, with the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the caller she had reached the wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. Interesting. Now, Jenny hung up and she returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. Two things the children normally attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. She noticed that Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch. So Jenny just assumed the other children who had stayed up later had gone back up the attic where they slept. So she closed the curtains and turned out the lights and returned to bed by herself. Okay.
1: I mean, it all seems reasonably standard. Like the kids forgot to close the curtains, whatever. I wouldn't be too concerned. And that phone call, like that's just a a wrong number, right? Like that's, I wouldn't chalk that up to much.
0: No. Now at 1 AM, so 30 minutes later, Jenny was again awakened, but this time by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a really loud bang then a rolling noise. Right. After hearing nothing further, she just went back to sleep.
1: Like maybe it's a bit of tree or okay. There's lots po- of weird things happening.
0: Yeah. A possum. Mm. I don't know. It <laughs> happens in West just... Virginia, but <laughs> caught a, a flight
1: out there. A bird or something <laughs> is just smashed in and then... <laughs> I don't know.
0: Now at 1.30 a.m., again, around half an hour, I'm not saying that this is to the minute, but sure. this is Jenny's recollection. So about after another half an hour, she woke up again, but this time she smelt smoke very clearly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and around the fuse box. Okay. So panic mode sets in. Jenny woke George up and in turn he woke up his older sons. Mm-hmm. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John and George Jr., Mm -hmm. escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not go up there as the stairway itself was already aflame. Shoot. John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there. Though he later changed his story to say that he only called up there and did not actually see them. Okay. So some inconsistencies going on, but...
1: Yeah. Efforts
0: to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion ran to a neighbours to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. They too were unsuccessful, either because they could not reach the operator or because the phone there turned out to be broken. Eventually, oh,
1: it's too many things.
0: mm, Eventually, either the neighbour or that passing motorist did successfully get through, and the fire uh, department—they successfully got through to the fire department in the centre of town, right, which is about three kilometres away.
1: Okay, so it's not too far. I was thinking like they're in the middle of nowhere. It's going to take ages. All right, so it's not too far. Got you. Not
0: too far. Now, George, the dad, he was barefoot. He tried climbing the wall and he broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot resting against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby.
1: What the heck?
0: A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. And George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the house and use them to climb up to the attic window. But neither of them would start, despite having worked perfectly during the previous day.
1: What the heck? That is too many...
0: Soak it in, baby. Oh my God. This is a
1: curse. It's a curse. There's a curse. What the hell?
0: I'm just laying it out. I love this. This is step by step on the night of the fire. Frustrated, obviously, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over in the next 45 minutes.
1: Jesus.
0: They assumed that the other five children had perished in the blaze. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until 8 a.m. that morning.
1: No. Surely you just wouldn't turn up. If you were in the fire station and you're just like, oh, Bill, thank God you came in. Look, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. We had a call about a house fire seven hours ago, six hours ago. Should we go and check it out? Like, what would you... I'd be like, oh, maybe it's too bothered. late. Maybe it's too late. Let's just get a cup of coffee. Let's get a croissant and we'll just, we'll be sure we're ready for the next one. Yeah. What?
0: I mean, look, it's a different time. As yeah. I said, they were low on manpower. This is not some ma- major city in West mm. Virginia. This is a small area. So sort of everyone knows everyone. It's all a bit volunteer led, all that sort of stuff. But sure. uh, yeah, interesting. Just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's about seven or six and a half so hours since the fire actually started. Now, Chief Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his own inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he had to wait until someone else who was able to drive became available.
1: So he's just sitting around (laughs) holding onto the keys for a fire truck. He can't drive. (laughs) <laughs> well, oh yeah, I'm gonna get I'm definitely I'm gonna get a job as an accountant, but I can't do maths. So yeah. I'll just wait for someone else to turn up who can do maths.
0: I imagine like a chief wiggum type situation <laughs> where he's like, I don't know where to put the car keys yeah. and he like puts it into the tire or puts it into the exhaust. He's like surely I could work this car. And
1: oh god, make me the chief of police or the chief mm. of fire. Far out.
0: Now interestingly One of the firefighters was a brother of Jenny, the mother. Okay. But he could do little, but look through the ashes that were left in the sodder's basement. By 10 a.m. Morris had told the sodders that they had not found any bones, as might have been expected, Mm -hmm. if the other children had been in the house as it burned. And according to another contact, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was cursory at best. Yeah,
1: they just sort of (laughs) kicked a couple of things and just sort of went, yeah, there's been a fire. (laughs) It's guaranteed. I'm pretty sure sure it burnt down. That's, uh, (laughs) That's what we think happened to your house. I mean, can't There's guarantee There's no sign that.
0: of a house escape. <laughs>
1: can't, can't be sure. Um, I mean, if we had it turned up six and a half hours ago, maybe we could have had a better idea. But the best that we could get, I guess, <laughs> your house burned down. Have a good day. <laughs> Call us if you need it. We can build us. houses.
0: <laughs> I don't know how to operate a store. No,
1: that's it. You're
0: going to have a crack. <laughs> 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 now, Chief Morris, despite all of this, whatever poor investigation and searching that was done, um, Chief Morris believed that the five children who were unaccounted, he just assumed that they had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Obviously six and a half hours, you know, whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, by the way, not laughing at the fact that there's people burning to death. I'm laughing at the poor response time and the, the fuss around that. Um, did anybody my question is and you might you might answer this so just stop me if you will answer mm. it but <clears throat> did anybody actually like lay eyes on the kids in the attic so dad's tried to get up there and has cut his arm older brother has said that he initially went up there but then changed that and said he just yelled up the staircase did, did anybody i mean will you is that something you, you'll chat about or is that
0: no it's a great question and apart from that uh elder son's change in accounts of what happened, yeah. which, you know, it could be sus, it might not be no one else laid eyes on the children. Jenny was the last person to have said good night when she went to bed with Sylvia. So, okay.
1: yeah, well, you know, too, like the older brother, he might've, he might've said that he went up there so that he didn't feel guilty about not going up there. If that was the exactly. case, like rather than it seeming sus to me, that's what I would have said. I would have been like, yes, I went up there. But then afterwards I would have just been like, no, I just yelled from the bottom and I should have done more. Um, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing.
0: That's the story of the night. That's what happened of the fire. <laughs> what a now shit let's, night. Yeah, not a <laughs> great Christmas Eve. No. So let's dig into what happened or what could have happened, the aftermath, all right? Yeah. Now, Chief Morris told George, the father, to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. Probably a good idea. Yeah. However, after four days, George and his wife could not bear the sight anymore. They're obviously in grief, so they bulldozed five feet or about one and a half meters of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden mm-hmm. for their lost children. Now, at this point, they had they never they had no reason to believe anything else had happened.
1: Yeah, of course he wouldn't,
0: right? Uh, the local coroner convened an inquest the next day which agreed that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Now, death certificates for the five children were issued December 30th. So this is five or so days after the actual incident. Mm-hmm. The local newspaper contradicted itself, though, stating that the, that all the bodies had been found, but it then later in the same story reported that only part of one body was recovered. It's all very confusing and inaccurate. Yeah. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to even attend the funeral on January 2nd. So this is all within like two weeks,
1: right? That's crazy. Yeah, it's so fast.
0: Although their surviving surviving children did attend the funeral. So here's where things get a little strange, Kate.
1: They were already strange from Christmas Uh, Eve. I know. You're going to do more to me? Oh my God.
0: Now, two months before the fire in October of 1945, A visiting life insurance salesman, after being rebuffed at the door, warned George that his house, in quotation marks, would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Now George attributed this kind of very specific and harsh response to all the dirty remarks that he had made about Mussolini. Right. Now, this same salesman would later be discovered to be one of the jurors in the inquest that determined it was faulty wiring as the cause of the fire.
1: Okay. Dodgy salesman. It's a bit suspect. Mm.
0: Another visitor to the house seeking work took the occasion to go around to the back of the house and he warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would definitely cause a fire someday.
1: Okay. And so nothing was done about the fuse boxes. Well,
0: George was puzzled by the observation since he had just had the house rewired for an electric stove that was being installed. And the local electric company had said afterwards that it was perfectly fine and safe. Okay. So very interesting that someone after the fact would still make the comment that the fuse box was Dodge. Yeah. In the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older sons had noticed a strange car parked along the highway through town. Its occupants were watching the younger sodded children as they returned home from school.
1: Alright, there's a bit of weird stuff happening in Mm -hmm. this place.
0: Let's get into it. The questions, which we have many.
1: I have heaps. Where do babies come from? Why is the ocean blue? Well, I've got heaps of questions. But are we doing it more specific to this story? Okay, We sure all are. Right. I will keep those questions for another time. Thanks, Kate. Don't don't, don't write them
0: down because they're worth answering. Oh, yeah. Now, not long afterwards, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Sodders started to question all the official findings about the fire. You know, grief had passed to some extent and they were starting to go, some things are not looking good quite right here. Yeah. Was it possible that the children were in fact killed by the fire or were they kidnapped by an unknown person? They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages. Remember the light was still on when Jenny woke up. Yes. The power was meant to have gone out. If the fuse box goes, the power goes out. They then found the ladder, which should have been up against the house where it is always kept, yep. and had been missing. They found it at the bottom of an, an embankment, 23 meters away from the house. So I mean, that's not very far, but it's no. But it's far. There's out. no reason.
1: Exactly. If you if you leave it where you're supposed to, let, so someone just picked it up and just yeeted the ladder down her, an embankment. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Now, a telephone repairman told the Sodders that that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire, as they had initially thought, but had been cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb four and a half meters up the pole and reach another two feet away from it to cut that wire.
1: So, yeah, that's specific.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle. Now a block and tackle is the thing, well, for those that don't know cars or anything about cars, it's something that you would use to lift or maneuver a car with like, a, you could either use another car or a, a crane or a winch or whatever it is. It's just, it's a piece of basic metal work that connects and hooks and moves, moves stuff. Perfect. Um, That they had seen, sorry, a man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire itself. Mm. It's a bit strange. Sus. However, no record identifying that specific suspect exists. So there's no record of that person being questioned. And there's the question of why would he want to cut any utility lines to the of house while stealing the block and tackle? It would never be, you know, there's no reason to cut any of no, that. No, there's
1: no connection. Like, just, yeah, okay, yep.
0: Why would, it's very interesting that it happens because obviously remember, Jenny had the phone call very late at night. Mm-hmm. So within half an hour, someone has cut the phone line Accidentally thinking it was the power line to steal a bait and tackle at what 12 one o'clock in yeah. the morning after this just... sus
1: phone call as well that she gets. This, yeah, yeah too very many interesting. Mm. Did, did I just? I didn't think I just said that word correctly. How did I just <laughs> say coincidence? Coincidences, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, I'm gonna have to listen back to that after because I think I just had a mild stroke. <laughs>
0: You have one every episode, Kate, so it's perfectly fine.
1: Sometimes this is where my dad would be like, and you're a school teacher? Like he says oh, that to God. me all the time. <laughs> all right, John. Thanks. Keep it in. Yeah.
0: All right. Now Jenny said in nineteen sixty eight that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with the other four children, would never have been able to make it out of the house. Like lights were still working. It's just none of this makes any sense, mm. right? Power was working, phone lines were working at least up until twelve thirty. So what What the F? Yeah. Now, Jenny also had trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found, still recognisable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read around the same time, and in that fire, a family of seven were killed. But skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case.
1: Yeah, so there's no way that this fire is hot enough to essentially cremate all of these people. Mm. Okay. Now,
0: Jenny, she even burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed, and none ever were. Mm. An employee of a local crematorium she contacted told her that the human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. So that's about 1,000, just over 1,000 degrees Celsius. Yeah far longer and far hotter than the house fire could ever have been so the house fire only lasted 45 minutes Mm. it it took six and a half seven hours for the firefighters to arrive but but it is important to know that the the fire like the house was timber it was gone and up in 45 minutes
1: yeah timber framed house Mm, i'm gonna start doing that now i'm like would you like to come to my brick (laughs) my brick and timber house it's very safe secure plasterboard
0: you you're you're a little detective you're picking up on my on the details that I'm including and I not i think including. now, yeah
1: look this is episode what i think 11 we're up to now mm-hmm. and um, we're just starting to get get the hang of of you know what we talk mm-hmm. about so we we're, yeah. we're a switched on
0: okay if you didn't for, you know the point that i just made about the the heat and Bodies burning in a fire. If you didn't realize already, it's, it is now actually pretty common knowledge to know that nobody can just do a backyard burn and get rid of a body. It's not an effective way of getting rid of evidence completely. Perfect. Um, there should always, there will always be some sort of bone remains.
1: And I think that that is important because we always like to teach our listeners about something. Mm-hmm. So if you're planning on getting rid of a body burning, not for you. Yeah. It's not going to work.
0: Not the best. Now, what about the trucks? Yes. The sodders' trucks' failure to start was also considered. Now, George believed that they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle, which is used to steal and move cars Mm -hmm. um, and take like an engine out of a car, like all that sort of stuff. Um, The same man who stole that block and tackle and cut the phone line Maybe it was him that had tampered with the cars. Mm-hmm. However, one of his sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette-Mail in 2013, which is obviously way after the fact, that he'd come to believe that Soda and his sons might have in their haste just flooded the engines and that's why they didn't start.
1: Okay. Yeah. You know, in the excitement
0: yeah. of what's happening. Yeah,
1: in the panic, they just have, you know, jumped in tried to start as fast as they could. All right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I just, oh mate, I still think it's both trucks, like come on.
0: Yeah. Some accounts have suggested the wrong number phone call to the soda house might or have also been connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. You know, very strange that it happened when it did. However, again, investigators later located the woman who had made the call and she confirmed it had been a wrong number on her part.
1: Okay. Okay. So she's just having a party. She wants to make a phone call to a friend and say come over, bring your clinky glasses and your laughter. And
0: <laughs> Yeah. Bring Scrabble yeah. or Boggle, okay?
1: Let's let's be wild. Let's do Twister. Let's go. Yes. World War 2 Twister.
0: Exactly. <laughs> now I just wanted to go through some of the main questions that you may have popped up in your head as listeners at home. I know I definitely do this when I listen to a murder mystery or mystery sort of podcast. I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, but what about this? Yeah. Now, I haven't gone through all of them. So, you know, I can only talk to the ones that I was able to find and research, but they were the main ones, at least the main things that popped up. So what's happened since, okay, developments up until today, where are we at? Now, by spring, that same year of the incident, the Sodders planted flowers in the soil, bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended it carefully with the rest of her, for the rest of her life, actually. Um, but in early, in early 1946, uh, there were some developments that really reinforced the family's belief that the children they were memora- me- memorializing might in fact be alive somewhere else. Ooh. Now, evidence emerged which supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical fault and was instead set deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small hard dark green rubber ball-like object in the bush nearby. Now, George, he recalled his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire and said it actually looked like what's called a pineapple bomb, which is just another word for a very specific type of hand grenade or another incendiary device which was used in the recent war. Oh, my
1: God.
0: And the family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof. Although there really was no evidence to prove that.
1: Yeah. Cause it all burnt down.
0: It all burnt down because it was what?
1: Really hot. Well, timber. Hot t- <laughs> <laughs> How could you forget, Kate? Uh, it was a timber frame house. I was put on the spot Then I panicked so much. I was <laughs> like, we always finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: Don't worry, we've had two weeks off. We're a bit rusty.
1: Oh my God. I mean, I'm not wrong though. It was hot. (laughs) Yeah, it was very, but not
0: hot enough to get rid of a body.
1: No, that's been tested.
0: Now, other witnesses claim to have seen the children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was still alight. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot as well.
1: Can I say as well, like it's, so how many kids had gone missing?
0: So they had 10 children all up. One of them, Joe's fighting a war. Cool. Four of them had gone to bed early. Yep. With Jenny and George.
1: And they got out.
0: And they all got out.
1: Okay, so we're talking five kids. Yeah. Okay, I really enjoyed as well. For those listening and not watching, Dom, Dom <laughs> just did an exceptional thing using his hands and his fingers to demonstrate to me how many, which was very helpful. So five kids, that's... Hold really- on, I think,
0: I, we, I think we got that wrong, actually. Did
1: we? <laughs> 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 no, because... There was <laughs> no. That's right. Ten kids. One yeah, at but law, one's
0: gone. Jenny and, and... was saved. Oh yeah, because so we're not right. counting Jenny okay, and George. Shut up.
1: Jenny. Yeah. Um, so that's right.
0: Oh my yeah, god, this is going get... to be the longest episode, and I'm so excited for it.
1: <laughs> it's good because
0: this is a complicated story, but it's really detailed too. So it's quite a mystery.
1: Yeah, but I think it's really game for someone to kidnap five children. Like mm. I feel like it would be hard enough to kidnap one. Mm. This is really fascinating. So what? Yeah, I'm keen to know what happens well, and where it goes. At the end,
0: we can we can do a bit of a roundup and see yes. see what we think. Excellent. What would you do in a situation like this? Obviously, the Sodders needed help, so they hired a private investigator named CC Tinsley.
1: <gasps>
0: CC. Hey, CC. Now, CC was from the nearby town of Gawley Bridge. And they asked uh, asked them to look into the case. Now Tinsley learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a the fire a year before over George's anti Mussolini mm-hmm. sentiments had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident, which is obviously very sus. Yeah. And the Sodders didn't realise that. So it wasn't until later that the Sodders found that out. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Chief Morris had in fact found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. What? Now wait, I oh. know, oh, it's. Oh, no, it's oh. before you get too intuitive about it, okay. Now, Chief Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister feeling very guilty. Yeah,
1: the too.
0: And that minister then confirmed to George that this is in fact what Chief Morris had done. Now George and Tinsley went to Morris and had confronted him with this news. Chief Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box and they dug it up. They took what they found inside what they had found inside the box to a local funeral director who after examining it told them it was in reality actually just fresh beef liver and had never been exposed to fire. (laughs) Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted that the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally (laughs) in the first place. He had supposedly placed it in there in the hope that the sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire.
1: Right. So bones completely gone, but just one heart. Hutt, one
0: yeah. Heart, yeah. One
1: heart. This there. chief
0: Morris is oh not the God. brightest tool of the shed. I think he should be replaced. This
1: is lovely. And also she, he would have needed someone to drive him to the supermarket to buy this liver because he can't drive. So he's like, oh, Mavis, will you take me down to the grocery? I just want to pick up a heart and just for no reason. I feel like it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mavis is she didn't married up, she married down Yeah, Chief Morris.
1: Chief Wiggum is punching punching with Mavis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So all right, what are they what else would you do? Let's do an excavation, shall we? Cuz not feeling super confident about Morris Morrison the team's job. Now, George did not wait for reports of sightings to even come in. Sometimes he made them himself. Uh, After seeing a girl in a magazine picture of a young ballet dancer in New York City who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty, he drove all the way to the girls' school where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused. Mm. So George is like in it. He's committed. He's, you know, and he's starting to see his children in other pictures of children, which, look. I'm, you know, on a serious note, I'm sure that is a very common thing and I don't wish that on anyone, hence why it's a fear of mine, losing yeah, a child.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, what else did he try? He also tried to interest the FBI in investigating what he considered it to be, a kidnapping. Oh. And our good old buddy, director J. Edgar Hoover. Ooh. I, I did the limp there for everyone that was watching at home.
1: J. Edgar. <laughs>
0: Uh, He even personally responded to George's letters um, saying although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this Bureau. Um, If the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance, he added, then of course they would have helped but the uh, Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined any assistance in August 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search, you know, a new excavation of the mm-hmm. site. Yeah. And after a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been of, of human nature, and they were vertebrae. Okay. But wait, there's more. The bone fragments were sent to Marshall T. Newman, and he was a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution, and they were confirmed to be lumbar lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. And since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been around 16 or 17 years old. And Newman, that's what he said in his report. He also said the top limit of this age should be about 22 because obviously everybody's a different and different time, different yep. place, people, whether they're eating right and or not, or all that sort of stuff. Or how hard
1: they work or physical labor, yeah. sitting down a lot. Sure.
0: Yeah. So highest is 22, 23. Thus, given this age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest Maurice had only been 14. Okay. Now, Although the report allowed that vertebrae of a boy of his age sometimes were advanced enough to appear to be at that lower end of the range, it's just it's very unlikely. Also interestingly is that Newman added that the bone showed no sign of exposure to flame, which obviously it would have had to have been.
1: Of course, it's in a fire.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. In a what? Timber-framed house. Timber-framed house. (laughs) Very hot. (laughs) Now he agreed it was very strange that those bones were the only ones found, of all you know, no yeah. other bones. This was a very thorough excavation, but only vertebra bones were found, outside of the age range, and were not not shown to have come into contact with any fire.
1: And no other bones or anything like this. I I am no doctor, but I think that there's more bones than vertebra.
0: Absolutely, yeah. and Newman felt the same way. He said there should have been more bones, yeah. even potentially a full skeleton, is what he expected to find. Mm. The report concluded that the vertebra had instead, most likely, come from the dirt that George had bulldozed over the site only a few days afterwards. Later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a nearby cemetery in Mount Hope, but could not explain how or where or why these bones were so close to the house and how they could have made their way onto the the site.
1: There's so many sus things. This is so bizarre.
0: Now, the Smithsonian, after they did their investigation, they returned the bone fragments to George in September of 1949, just in case, you know, if these were the bones of a child, his child, you might, you you would want to hold on to something. But their current location is unknown. The family have no, no idea where it is now. This is, a, it got pretty, this is a big deal, like it's quite a mystery. So the investigation and its findings attracted a lot of national attention and the West Virginian legislator had two hearings on the case in 1950. So it's only about, you know, maybe five years afterwards. Um, however, the governor and the state police superintendent told the sodders that the case was hopeless and they closed it at a state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. So not even the FBI could find anything.
1: Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of people involved in this and there's just so many unanswered things. Yes.
0: So let's wrap this up because, you know, it's a long story, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. With the end of the official reports to resolve the case, the Sodders did not give up hope they had flyers printed up with pictures of the children. They offered money for information. In 1952, they even put up this, what's now what was known as a really famous billboard. It had, it was up for years and years and years, and it was long. It was along uh, the U.S. Route 60, or later turned into the U.S. Route 19. It was this massive billboard with the with the kids' pictures on it, and it turned into a bit of like a a famous poster. Everyone wow. who drew, drew through saw it. Now. They've done everything that they can do on their end. And I spoke about how George sometimes thought he saw pictures or or whatever. And there were some people on the night that said that they thought they saw the kids. These weren't the only sightings. So the family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. A lady named Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. In her own words, she said, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction. When she attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began speaking rapidly in Italian. And then immediately the whole party stopped talking to me. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. And inve- investigators today do not, however, consider her story really that credible as she had only seen the photos of the children two years after the fire. So five years before she came forward. So it just she had a very detailed story, but she'd she only seen that. the pictures of these kids for, you know, two years after the event. And she was able to remember it, remember them specifically. Yeah. And then she waited another five years to come forward. So
1: it's just all a bit us again but yeah it's you
0: just never know that's why like firsthand witnesses and stuff like that you think that they're the most reliable thing in the world but it's actually they're the worst Mm. people's memory is shocking and they they definitely see what they might want to see yep now george passionate george you gotta love george he followed up leads in person he traveled to areas where he found further tips Um, Another one was a woman in St. Louis, Missouri, claimed Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before, but none of these ever proved significant. And when George heard later that a relative of of Jenny's in Florida had had children that looked like some that were similar to his, the relative, like he stalked this relative down and had to prove that the children were their own Uh-oh. before George was satisfied. So obviously yeah. a very desperate father.
1: Yeah, definitely. Poor George. Yeah.
0: In 1967, George went, uh, went to Houston uh, to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law, uh, I won't say his name, it doesn't matter, because there's too many names. George and his <laughs> son-in-law, Grover, oh, yeah. it's such a bad name, Grover, were unable to find her and speak with her. Police, they were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Um, the son-in-law said years later that doubts about their denial lingered in george's mind for the rest of his life though so they found these two men who supposedly when drunk said that they were lewis and maurice but um they denied it later it's it's very strange but i had to mention that one because george died feeling that there was something odd and not quite right about their denial
1: Oh man, poor George. Another
0: letter they received in 1967 brought the Sodders what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny, the mother, found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man of around 30 with features strongly resembling Lewis. Um, And he would have been in his 30s as as well. And on the back of the picture was written Lewis Sodder. I love brother Frankie. Oh, Very interesting. Man. Now, George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail late the next year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall and we can't really go any further. He obviously vowed to continue, but time is running out. Uh, he admitted in another interview around that time, but we only want to know if they die, if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Now, George Sodder, he died in 1969. So only a couple of years after uh, that letter. Mm-hmm. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never really liked to talk about the case anyway, they, they continued to seek answers. Um, After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the site of the former house. She later died in 1989 and the family took the weathered, worn billboard down off the state route. So it was kind of once Jenny had died. I think people were starting to give up. The surviving soda children joined by their own children continued to publicise the case and investigate leads. Uh, they, along with other Fayetteville residents, have theorised that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from the family. You know, they had their own business and were doing quite well. Yeah. Or that they may have been taken back to Italy um, for whatever reason. Just cause. Who knows?
1: Who knows? There's so many inconsistencies and little... Oh, things and poor George just drove all over the states looking for his kids and mm-hmm. oh man.
0: So what's happening today? <gasps> what so this story is still relevant. Oh, so no Sylvia, little baby Sylvia, do you remember? She was, do. she was carried off two. to bed. She, she was. was two. Sylvia Soda Paxton, the youngest in the family. She's the last survivor from that night. She mm-hmm. died in 2021, so just last <gasps> oh, year. Shit. She was in the house on the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. I was one of the last, I was the last one of the kids to leave that home, she recalled to the Gazette-Mail in 2013. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. She said, I experienced their grief for a a long time. And she believed that her siblings survived that night. And she went on to assist with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Her daughter, Sylvia's daughter said in 2006, she promised my grandparents she would let the story die, that she would do everything, she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything that she could to try and solve
1: it. Jeez, that's a big burden. To carry Ugh, Like yes. just never let it go.
0: In the 21st century, in today's day, uh, these efforts have sort of come to include lots of online forums and reddits and web sleuths. Uh, there's been lots of media coverage about this for years. It's still a mystery. We do not know what happened. So it's one of those lingering things, unsolved mysteries. Ugh, yeah. um, the increase in, the, in a lot of the media coverage recently have come to examine the case, and they believe that the children did, in fact, die in 1945. Um, George Bragg, a local author who wrote about the case in his 2012 book, West Virginia's Unsolved Murders, uh, he believes that John was telling the truth in his original account when he said he tried to physically awaken his siblings before fleeing the house. He allows that the conclusion may still not be correct. Logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always apply logic. And there's still lots of unanswered questions. Where are the remains? What happened to them, right? Yeah, that's
1: right. Where's the physical evidence?
0: Mm -hmm. And Stacey Horn, who uh, did a segment on the case for NPR around its 60th anniversary in 2005, uh, she also believes that the children's death in the fire is the most plausible solution. In a post on her blog with material she had to cut from her story just for time, she did note that the fire had continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly. Though they did do an extra excavation, just saying.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Even if it had been, the firefighters may not have known what to look for because clearly they were inept <laughs> as fuck.
1: Yeah, not really instilling a lot of confidence in their abilities.
0: Yeah, but even our old girl Stacey, she says there is enough genuine weirdness about this whole thing that if someday it is learned that the children did not in fact die in the fire, she wouldn't be shocked. And that is the mystery of the Sodder children.
1: Yay! Oh, what a great story, Dominic. Really I'm sorry we that.
0: don't have an answer, but uh, it's a good story. No,
1: that's okay. I kind of like that, it, leaving it open to interpretation. And again, I feel the same way after after being a part of this story for this episode. I wouldn't be shocked if someone goes, mm. hey, I'm Maurice. Pleasure to meet you. I just couldn't stand it, bringing the cows in every night. So... <laughs>
0: be our guest, be our guest.
1: <laughs> Crazy old Maurice. <laughs>
0: You did that really well.
1: Thank you. Oh, man, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that, Dom. That was a great story. And, uh, you know, again, there was only a couple of tangents. I think we did really well to stay on track. Oh, yeah. I mean, could.
0: especially with everything <laughs> shutting down and dying. That's
1: so We've true. edited
0: that out for all of you lovely listeners. But, yes, my computer literally got rona as well and decided to, to pack it in halfway through so but that just shows you how amazingly talented we are at editing
1: there you go you wouldn't even notice you would not even notice
0: all right let's wrap up kate because we're over time but your quick sort of you know, give me a yay or nay. What do you think? What's your, if you're an investigator, where would you land on this, on this crazy case? I
1: think the only question that I have is, you know, did the kids definitely come back to the house after doing the, the cows and all of that sort of stuff? Um, and then the other thing is like five kids, that's so many kids to kidnap. I just, mm. there's gotta be something. I just, yeah, I think the most plausible, again, I agree with Stacy. was it that the most plausible reason or the most pa- plausible thing was that they, they burned in the fire, but where's the evidence? And, mm-hmm. yeah, so many unanswered questions.
0: I think when you can't trust that the proper analysis and and ex- excavation of the site, because there should be bone. That's yeah. just a fact. I don't believe that there's could be no evidence of their bodies, but I don't feel like I could trust that the, the site's been proper, properly excavated, even <laughs> yeah. though or okay. something else could have happened, Yeah. even though they claim it has been, you're just never never sure. And I think that there's enough weird stuff to have happened that they could have been taken. So I must admit I'm leaning more to the side of something other than their bodies being burned in the fire. But I think it's easy to get sucked in by all the weirdness. Totally. I'm sure a lot of the weird things could be probably explained, but alongside others that can't, it makes it for a more compelling case. So anyway... Okay.
1: Agreed Well I'm going to go And like a little um, Sort of Carnival route We just had an episode Of Clowns That was released Which was one of Mm -hmm. my Personal favourites So if you've not Listened to that Please do But I'm going to look At amusement park rides For our next episode um, Because They Are terrifying And Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk About some of the Terrifying things That have happened With evidence And with You know stories and we might even have a special guest who has a bit of inside knowledge about it but you'll have to wait and see when we listen to the next episode
0: i'm shaking my chicken wing arms because i'm just so excited
1: Do the chicken all right ways.
0: thanks so much kate
1: thank you dominic and i look forward to seeing you next week
0: stay safe everyone please like us and subscribe bye
1: <laughs> that's a wrap big shout out to everyone for tuning in to shit and bricks
0: don't forget to subscribe rate and review us plus you can find extra little nuggets on our socials
1: next week we'll be back talking more shit so do not forget to tune in
0: and remember to wipe flush and wash your hands goodbye